All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotep, hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecture writer, and historian. So it is Sunday, May 29th, 2022. And I want to come on for a few minutes. Uh, so I'm going to teach uh, another session of this 10-week online class that I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. So I wanted to come on uh, for a few minutes and talk about some of the topics that we deal with uh, in the class. Um, because we look at history from 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution through 1968, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. Um, so I'm going to teach a session of this class as soon as we finish this broadcast, right around 3.30 p.m. or so today. So you can join us live in the class at our online school. So some of the things that we deal with um, in the class, and I'm going to show you some of the slides also. We look at the Red Summer of 1919, okay? The Red Summer of 1919, where you had over 20, uh, over 25 major uh, race riots in this country. Uh, and this was after World War I ended, okay? And in 2019, when you had the uh, 100th anniversary of the uh, Red Summer, of 1919, uh, that's when a lot of people really started finding out uh, about the Red Summer, okay? But this ties into a deep history of lynchings, uh, domestic terrorism uh, in this country, uh, ties into a history of the Ku Klux Klan and the rejuvenation of the Ku Klux Klan. All this uh, ties into this history. And what we're going to see is that African-American World War I veterans are going to use the skills that they learned during World War I and uh, in, in the U.S. involvement in World War I. U.S. gets involved in 1917. They're going to use these skills to uh, fight back and protect their communities. All right. So this is a 10-week online class that I teach. Uh, the class is regularly $130. It's on sale $60. We have the information here in the thread of the broadcast. So you can register for the class and you can join us in class today um, right after this broadcast, all right? And we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded, so you can go back and watch it anytime. All right, so if we look briefly here, what was the Red Summer of 1919, okay? So the Red Summer of 1919 marked the culmination of steadily growing tensions surrounding the great migration of African-Americans from the rural South to cities of the North that took place during World War One, And another thing that we deal with is the, the, the Great Migration, which begins in about 1915. And we see uh, six million African-Americans migrating from the South up North and out West. The Great Migration is going to totally change uh, this country. We know that in 1910, about 90% of African-Americans lived in the South. And this is as a result of the uh as a result of slavery okay so when we in this class we look at this history chronologically it's important to understand this history chronologically and understand cause and effect so this is why when we look at the civil war we don't start in 1861 when the civil war starts uh with the attack on fort sumter april 12 1861 we go back to 1803 and look at the louisiana purchase in the haitian revolution and then like things like the missouri compromise of 1820 the Mexican-American War of 1846-1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, which uh, in the U.S. gets uh, 
one third of the territory that Mexico has. The U.S. gets California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah and Nevada as a result of the Mexican-American War, which is going to lead to things like the Compromise of 1850 and the Future of the Slave Act of 1850. So we see see cause and effect and we see this chronology of this history and we can see what leads up to the Red Summer taking place. Okay, so when the war ended in 1918, World War I ends in 1918, thousands of servicemen returned home fighting in Europe uh, return home from fighting in Europe to find that their jobs in factories, warehouses, and mills had been filled by newly arrived uh, newly arrived Southern African Americans or immigrants. Okay, so this is going to cause racial uh, racial tensions. There were five about five million um, uh, men who fought in World War One. When these white men left, they had jobs. When they come back, their jobs are being filled by African Americans who migrated from the South up north and by immigrants who are already here. You're going to have an increase in the power of the Ku Klux Klan, which had largely died out by 1915. The Ku Klux Klan founded December 24th, 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, um, right uh, in the same month that the 13th Amendment was ratified, ratified December 6th, 1865, when Georgia ratifies the 13th Amendment. This is what legally frees the enslaved Africans legally uh, in slavery. It wasn't the, the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, which was a military strategy that Lincoln used. It was executive order, military strategy that Lincoln used to try to bring the South back into the Union, okay? So when we look at this, we're going to see that the movie, The Birth of a Nation, helps to rejuvenate the Ku Klux Klan, and we deal with the movie, The Birth of a Nation, in this country, in, in, in this course. Uh, we see the movie, The Birth of a Nation, uh, which shows the Klan as being the heroes of the movie, helps rejuvenate the Ku Klux Klan. You're going to have a second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan founded in October 1915 by the Reverend William Joseph Simmons. The Reverend William Joseph Simmons, after seeing the movie, The Birth of a Nation, rejuvenates the Ku Klux Klan. And you're going to have both Republicans and Democrats as members of this second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan. They become very powerful and they're going to instigate a lot of the uh, a lot of the the the, uh, the uh, grievances that a lot of these white men have also the Klan and other uh, groups like the Klan as well. Okay, so uh, we see that uh, amid financial insecurity, racial and ethnic prejudice prejudices ran rampant. Meanwhile, African American veterans, World War One veterans who had risked their lives found themselves denied basic rights such as adequate housing and equality under the law, leading them to become increasingly militant, leading them to become increasing, increasingly militant. And when these brothers came back home, they were saying, we want all of our rights now. OK, we want all of our rights now. We we uh, we fought overseas. Um, um, we, uh, we fought for. Uh, freedom abroad. Now we want all of our rights here at home. We're not going to deal with the lynchings and the segregation anymore. Okay. Uh, one of those major uh, race riots was in Chicago. 1919, July 1919, on July 27th, 1919, when large crowds of white and black patrons went to uh, the Lake Michigan Beach in Chicago, Illinois, to seek relief from the 90 degree heat, an angry dispute erupted 
over the stoning of Eugene Williams, over the stoning of Eugene Williams, who was a young African-American swimmer. I think he's about 17 years old, uh, who inadvertently crossed an imaginary segregated boundary uh, that was in in the uh, in the water, in the lake, an imaginary segregated boundary. He crossed this into the white swimming area, white beachgoers threw stones at Eugene Williams, okay, causing him to drown. When police refused to arrest any white people who were accused by African-American bystanders uh, of, of having thrown the stones and instead arrested an African-American beachgoer on a white person's complaint of some minor offense, the African-Americans began to attack the white police officers. The African-Americans began to attack the white police officers. Now, reports of the incident spread throughout Chicago, igniting a clash of white and African-American rioters across the city's south side. This incident released years of accumulated racial tensions, starting from a uh, constricting job market and the efforts by Chicago African-Americans to secure adequate housing by moving into previously all-white neighborhoods as thousands of African-Americans began arriving in the city during World War, World War I as part of what would be called the Great Migration. Now, this right here, there's a lot of information uh, on this um, race ride that took place in Chicago, and there's about over 25 major race rides that took place across the country in 1919. This is the year after World War I ends. This is the same year that you have the... Uh, 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 you have the Spanish flu pandemic that uh, starts right around the same time as well, uh, the, the great pandemic. And uh, this right here, you have um, an African-American World War One veteran who's out in the uh, who's out in the street and the uh, state, the Chicago state militia, I mean, Illinois state militia, I should say, they're called in to put down the uh, race riot. OK, so you're going to have these brothers in, in various cities. They're going to be out in the streets in their World War One uniforms with their guns protecting their communities. OK, the state militia was called in to quell the violence on Chicago's south side during the 1919 race rides. Now, violence soon broke out between gangs and mobs of African-American and white uh, and white people concentrated in the south side neighborhood surrounding the stockyards. After police were unable to quell the violence, the state militia was called in on the fourth day of the race riot, but the fighting continued until August 3rd. Shootings, beatings, and arson attacks eventually left 15 whites and 23 African-Americans dead, and more than 500 more people, around 60% African-American, were injured. An additional 1,000 black families were left homeless after rioters torched their residences. Now, here's another picture here. Uh, young boys run to the corner where a young African-American man was being beaten during Chicago's race rides in 1919. White youngsters drove out African-American residents by stoning their homes during the race rides. OK, so we're going to see things like this uh, across the country during during the red summer. Um, and when we look at the movie, The uh, uh, Birth of a Nation, right? which we talk about in the class, because we look at this history chronologically. We go from 1803 uh, with the Louisiana Purchase uh, to un really understand cause and effect and understand what leads up to the Civil War taking place. We look at the Reconstruction Era, 1865, 1877. 
um, in the end of Reconstruction with the Compromise of 1877, we look at the laws and policies put in place that lead us to where we are today and understand the voter suppression that's taking place and these voter suppression laws that we see 19 states passing 34 voter suppression laws and, and, and voter suppression laws being pushed and 400 state legislatures being pushed by Republicans. We see the January 6, 2021 insurrection, which is really a, uh, which is really a continuation of the U.S. Civil War and reconstructing the, and the political violence that we see during the reconstruction era, which is going to lead to reconstruction ending. Okay. So we have to understand this history and understand these laws and policies put in place that put us in the predicament that we're in today to understand what needs to happen from here, where we need to go from here. Okay. But politics is the legal distribution, the scarce wealth, power and resources and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments and treaties, their adoption, interpretation and enforcement. And um, we have to understand how all this is connected. And this is why understanding this history is so important because laws and policies shape historical events and historical movements. And those historical movements come into uh, existence to then create laws and policies to address the conditions that were the reason why these movements took place in the first place, okay? So how's everybody doing today? Share this broadcasting on social media platforms invite your friends uh, to tune in also. Also in this class, we deal with the Haitian Revolution. Some of you may have seen the, um, uh, the, the presentation that I did, the video that I did dealing with the uh, research coming from the uh, New York Times that deals with um, how uh, France was uh, forced to, Haiti was forced to pay uh, $560 million, um, the equivalent of uh, $560 million in today's dollars to uh, France for reparations uh, for the Haitian Revolution, okay? And all, all this history is tied together. And then what we're going to see is uh, we're going to see that uh, what we're going to see when we study the history of Haiti is that because of the, uh, partly because of the Haitian Revolution, we're going to see that uh, France uh, has to sell the land that the U.S. Uh, is going to buy during the Louisiana Purchase. France has to sell that land uh, to raise money to fight against the Haitians. And with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, that was uh, one of the largest accomplishments of uh, President Thomas Jefferson. The U.S. is going to basically double the territory uh, and double the territory at, at this time, the U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land for less than three cents an acre. And what this is going to do is provide more uh, fertile land for crops to be grown on. And this increases the need for African slave labor in some of these states, some of this territory that the U.S. gets from uh, France. Uh, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 brought into the United States about 828,000 square miles of territory from France. And this is land that France basically stole from Native Americans and African African people who were already here. Okay, France had no legal claim to this land. They basically stole the land. These are colonizers. We did it with European colonizers, whether they're the U.S. government, whether they're the U.S., whether they're France, whether it's Spain. You're dealing with colonizers, whether it's the Dutch. The Dutch were here. The French were here. The Spanish were here, the 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 English were here uh, in in the thirteen colonies. These are colonizers. 
what was known at the time as the Louisiana Territory stretched from the Mississippi River in the east to the Rocky Mountains in the west and from the Gulf of Mexico in the south to the Caribbean border in the north. Part or all of 15 states were eventually created from the land, which is considered one of the most important achievements uh, of Thomas Jefferson's presidency. And we can look here at this map and we can see the uh, the territory there in the middle of what we call the United States of America. We see the Louisiana Territory there and, and the territory that, made, that was made up in 1803. Okay. We see down here, Florida. Florida was Spanish territory until about 1821. Uh, and Florida is going to be free territory uh, also. So you had a lot of runaway African slaves who run into Florida. This is one of the reasons why the U.S. wanted that land from Florida. Okay, for one that land from Spain. We see over here this uh, uh, southern portion of the United States, a lot of this land owned by Spain as well. Okay, so and then we see that Mexico was Spanish territory, and then we see the U.S. is going with uh, Mexico wins its independence from Spain in 1821. We're going to see the 1846 1848. We're going to see these Europeans here in the U.S. go to war with Mexico over a territorial dispute. Uh, uh, as well, which deals with the boundaries of, of where uh, Mexico and uh, the, the Mexican border and the U.S. border are, uh, is. We're going to see uh, a territorial dispute and we're going to see a dispute over Texas. OK, uh, as well. OK, so uh, we look at the uh, Civil War, 1861, 1865, Reconstruction, all of that history. But I was talking about um, the uh, birth of a nation here. So the birth, the movie, The Birth of a Nation is based upon a novel by a man named uh, the Reverend Thomas Dixon, the Reverend Thomas Dixon. Okay. And, um, this movie revolutionizes, um, uh, filmmaking. It costs a hundred thousand dollars to make the film when, uh, it first came out. And the heroes of the movie are the, uh, Ku Klux Klan. The movie takes place during, the uh, Reconstruction era, slavery, Reconstruction, and uh, the Civil War, okay? And you're going to have a group of um, former Union Negro soldiers who uh, there's a rebellion taking place after during Reconstruction. And you're going to have the Ku Klux Klan um, who rise up and put down this rebellion. And the, the clan are, are the heroes of the movie. Okay, this, it, this is said to be the birth of a nation and the clan are the heroes of the movie. So I wanna show you this other article here. William uh, Joseph Simmons. Okay, so the clan uh, is said to be the heroes of the movie. And now the movie, the birth of a nation is based upon um, is based upon a novel called The Klansman, a novel called The Klansman by a man named Thomas Dixon, Reverend Thomas Dixon, actually. OK. And uh, in that novel, the Ku Klux Klan are the heroes also. All right. Now, if we look here at this uh, article here, I want to pull this up here. This is about the Reverend William Joseph Simmons. 
and this is a good article from the Washington Post. This deals with the um, the preacher who rejuvenated the Ku Klux Klan. Okay, so how's everybody doing? Give us a thumbs up, give us a heart, give us a like on this broadcast. You can register for this 10-week online class. I teach this on Sundays um, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Next class is going to, uh, we're going to teach the next class uh, today right after I finish this uh, short broadcast. So you can join us in class. It's going to start up right around 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Normally, I do it on Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but uh, we're running behind schedule today, so it's been a, it's been a crazy day. I do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded, um, so you can go back and watch it anytime. Also, we have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Uh, the class is regularly uh, $130. It's on sale uh, right now, $60. And as soon as you uh, register, there's bonus content that you can watch also. You can watch uh, uh, the, the class we did last weekend. Uh, so there's bonus content. Um, and even after the course is over with, you still have full access to the class. So a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire course. OK, so we have the link here and thread of the broadcast as well. OK, so. Uh, if we look at this article here quickly. Uh, the preacher who used Christianity to revive the Ku Klux Klan, the preacher who used Christianity to revive the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, this is from April 10th, 2018, by Deneen L. Brown for the Washington Post. And this is, here is a picture of that preacher, the Reverend William Joseph Simmons. Okay, the Reverend William Joseph Simmons. Um, it was approaching midnight, October 16, 1915. Methodist preacher William Joseph Simmons and at least 15 other men climbed Stone Mountain in Georgia. And Stone Mountain is the largest a Confederate monument in this country, Stone Mountain in Georgia. They climbed Stone Mountain in Georgia. They built an altar, set fire to a cross, took an oath of allegiance to the Invisible Empire, and announced the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, which had largely died out by 1915. Beneath a makeshift altar glowing in the flickering flames of the burning cross, they, used, they laid a U.S. flag, a sword, and a holy Bible. Okay. He said the angels that have anxiously watched the Reformation uh, from its beginnings, said the Reverend William Joseph Simmons, who declared himself Imperial Wizard, must have hovered above Stone Mountain and shouted Hosannas to the highest heavens, okay? Uh, so re read the rest of this article here. And this is, you see them using Christianity, fusing Christianity with white supremacy, or we could say white European Christianity with white supremacy to uh support domestic terrorism which is a lot what you see some of the language you see coming from certain factions of the republican party uh certain uh these uh white christian uh, uh fundamentalist things like this you see some of the same language mixed with uh, second amendment rights and things like this um so okay so re uh, read the article here as well all right and it talks about the the, the movie the birth of a nation. The Invisible Empire's comeback was aided by Hollywood's first blockbuster, 
D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, which glamorized the Ku Klux Klan. Restricting membership to white Christians, the Klan wore white robes to symbolize purity, burned crosses to signify the light of Christ, and picked selective scriptures from the Bible to preach white supremacy. Picked selective scriptures from the Bible to preach white supremacy. This is a lot what a lot of these Republicans are doing today. Okay, the very same thing. So this is why we have to understand these, this history, understand what happened so we can change the course and keep history from repeating itself. Okay, um, and then also, you, some of you all saw the uh, broadcast I did dealing with uh, Haiti and the, um, the, the New York Times uh, expose that they did dealing with uh, the Haitian Revolution and how Haiti was por uh, forced to pay uh, reparations to France. Haiti was forced to pay reparations for, to France. They have uh, this piece here, the ransom demanding reparations and ending up in exile. And it talks about then President John Bertrand Aristide in, uh, back in 2003 uh, when he demanded uh, uh, reparations be paid to Haiti, to France, and it deals with how uh, the Fremen and the U.S. government were involved in a coup to overthrow uh, John Bertrand Aristide. Um, it, talks, it, it deals with this, but it, it goes into the history and deals with how Haiti was forced to pay an equivalent of uh, $560 million um, to France, okay? The New York Times scoured thousands of pages of archival government documents to determine how much Haiti sent to France over the course of generations, not just in official payments to former slaveholders, but also for a loan to help pay them. Because Haiti, was, they, they talk about what we call the double debt. Haiti was uh, forced to pay reparations to France, but also forced to take out a loan from a French bank as well to pay France. And there's in, there was interest on that loan, so they were dealing with a double debt. Okay, not just in official payments uh, uh, to former slaveholders, but also for a loan to help pay them. We found that Haiti paid France a total of $560 million. We found that Haiti paid France a total of $560 million in today's dollars. But that, but that only begins to account for the loss. But that only begins to account for the loss. With the help of 15 leading economists from around the world, we have modeled what might be what might have happened if that money we have modeled what might have happened if that money had gone into the Haitian economy. OK, we have modeled what may have happened if that money had gone into the Haitian economy. Rather than being shipped off to France with uh, without getting any goods or services in return, our estimates found that over time. The payments to France cost Haiti $21 billion to $115 billion in lost economic growth, 
but in perspective, that is anywhere from one to eight times the size of Haiti's entire economy in 2020. We were building a path to the truth. Uh, uh, John, er uh, uh, John Patron Aristide, uh, uh, then president of, of uh, Haiti said, uh, said in the interview without being told the outcome of the Times analysis. Okay, so uh, check this uh, piece out here. from uh, the New York Times demanding the ransom, demanding reparations and ending up in exile, okay? And this is from, this is a huge, they did uh, three huge articles in this series. Uh, this is from May 20th, 2022, updated May 26th, 2022. Then we look at this one here. So all this history is connected. All this history is, connect, is connected, and this is why we deal with this history chronologically in the class. Okay, so if you look at this one here, um, six takeaways about Haiti's reparations to France. Six takeaways about Haiti's reparations to France. How did the modern world's most successful slave revolt give birth to a desperately poor nation? Here's a summary of what a team of New York Times correspondents found out. And if you look here at um, number one, they talk about double debt that started it all. The double debt that started it all. Um, when a French warship bristling with cannons sailed into the port of the Haitian capital in 1825, an emissary from King Charles X of France came ashore and delivered an astonishing demand. France wanted reparations from the people it had enslaved. France wanted reparations from the people it had enslaved. Okay, ordinarily the defeated are the ones who pay reparations, not the victors. Just a decade earlier, France had paid, uh, France had been forced to pay them to its, forced to pay reparations to its European neighbors after the failed military campaigns of Napoleon Bonaparte. Now the very emperor whose forces were also defeated by the Haitians. But Haiti was virtually alone in the world with no powerful allies. Haiti was virtually alone in the world with no powerful allies. It was fearful of being invaded and eager to establish trade with other nations, so it agreed to pay. Man was for 150 million French francs to be turned over in five annual payments far more than Haiti could pay. So France pushed Haiti to take a loan from a group of French banks to start paying, okay? Now that Sisyphean weight came to be known as the double debt, the double debt, which has a rippling, crippling effect on Haiti today. Okay, so then they look at the true cost to Haiti then and today. The, the New York Times tracked each payment Haiti made over the course of, four, of 64 years. In all, they added up to about $560 million in today's dollars, okay? Every, um, the, uh, uh, but the loss to Haiti cannot just be measured by adding up how much was paid to France and to outside lenders over the years. Every franc uh, shipped across the Atlantic, the, their, their currency, their uh, 
the French currency, the franc. Every franc shipped across the Atlantic Ocean to an overseas bank vault was a franc not circulating among Haiti's farmers, laborers, and merchants, okay? So uh, the sort of expenditures that helped nations become nations that enable them to prosper. All right, so after reviewing thousands of pages of archival documents, some centuries old and consulting with 15 of the world's leading economists, our correspondents calculated the payments to France cost Haiti uh, from between $21 billion to $115 billion in lost economic growth over time. That's over that period of 64 years. The, the, the payments that France made to Haiti cost Haiti from between $21 billion to $115 billion in lost economic growth over time. That is as much as eight times the size of Haiti's economy in 2020, okay? So read the rest of this here. But this is why we, we go through, and these are all things that we deal with in the 10-week online class that I teach, uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. So we do, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips. There's over 50 articles that we reference in the class. Uh, we do the sessions live. As soon as I finish this broadcast, we're going to do a live session. So we do it today. Uh, so Sunday is going to start here in a few minutes. You can join us in class live. Um, the class is on sale, $60, regularly $130 from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Normally, we do it on Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so we're starting uh, a little later today. We, uh, as soon as you register, there's bonus content that you can start watching uh, as well. You can watch last week's class and the week before that. Uh, we just, So this class just started up a couple of weeks ago. You can use this information with your children as well. I would say this information is PG-13, okay? Um, and I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have video clips, book references, articles. We look at a timeline of history also to understand cause and effect and to look at how we got to where we are today to understand where we need to go from here. And we also look at what's taking place today politically, what's taking place today with these cultural wars that Republicans are waging, like critical race theory, different things like this. All this is tied to history, okay? If you look at this article here from the New York Times, it came out January 12, 2022. This is an article that I that I talk about often. Uh, this article deals with um, the how reconstruction, the history of reconstruction is not properly taught in schools across the country but it also deals with um, the January 6, 2021 insurrection, which is a continuation of uh, the Reconstruction era and the conflicts that lead up to the Civil War taking place also. Okay, so if we look at this, uh, we look at this quickly here, a new report finds that 45 states are failing students about the period that shaped race relations after the Civil War. This is from Time Magazine, time.com, January 12, 2022. In the aftermath of the insurrection a year ago, January 6, 2021, at the U.S. Capitol, many leading historians 
uh, drew parallels between the violence and, and the Reconstruction era, period of political revolution directly following the American Civil War. Okay, so uh, Eric Foner, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and the author of the book Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863 to 1877, he said in an interview with the New Yorker magazine published a week after the January 6th insurrection, he said the events we saw reminded me very much of the Reconstruction era. The events we saw reminded me very much of the Reconstruction era and the overthrow of Reconstruction, which was often accompanied or accomplished, I would say, by violent assaults on elected officials, all right? Um, so, and these violent assaults on elected officials, this is one of the reasons why you're gonna have to have the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Okay, now scholars say studying the aftermath of the Civil War can help put into help put in context many of the most seminal events in the U.S. in recent years. Because all this history is connected. The, the history is connected to laws and policies and politics. It's connected to movements that take place in this country. That's why we have to understand a chronology of this history and cause and effect. Uh, seminal events in the U.S. in recent years, from the brutal murder of George Floyd by police in 2020 to the voter suppression laws enacted by enacted after African-American voters played a big role in helping Joe Biden and Kamala Harris be elected president and vice president in 2020. Despite the timeliness of the era in today's climate, many students in American schools will not get a full education on Reconstruction until they go to college. Problem is, many of them are not going to go to college, so they're never going to get this type of history. In the social in social studies standards for 45 out of 50 states and the District of Columbia, discussion of Reconstruction is partial or non-existent. Or non-existent discussion of Reconstruction is partial or non-existent, according to historians who have reviewed the period, uh, how the period is discussed in K through 12 social studies standards for public schools nationwide. In a report produced by the education nonprofit, the Zen Education Project, the studies, uh, the studies author, the studies authors say they are concerned that American children will grow up to be uninformed about a critical period of history that helps explain why full racial equality remains unfulfilled today. You're largely dealing with a dumbed-down electorate. You're largely dealing with a dumbed-down electorate that don't understand history, don't understand the Constitution, don't understand law, things like this. All this is connected, okay? So this is why all this information is so important. The Zen Education Project, a free website, uh, a, a, a website with free downloadable lessons and articles about history topics is an outgrowth of Howard Zinn's 1980, A People's History of the United States which helped popularize an approach to studying history from the bottom up and incorporating the often overlooked histories of people of color. Now, the Reconstruction era, a period roughly from 1865 to 1877, saw immense social, political, and economic outgrowth as the U.S. worked, as the U.S. worked to rebuild society in the aftermath of the Civil War. 
In this period, three constitutional amendments were ratified, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, which barred discrimination in voting, the 15th Amendment on the count of race. These advances helped facilitate a rise in African-American office holders and black voters during the Reconstruction era, okay? Then we're gonna see this backlash uh, towards the, you see this backlash towards the end of Reconstruction, definitely, but after Reconstruction ends in 1877. But in the late 1870s, the federal government pulled out of its role. The federal government pulled out of its role uh, uh, helping to enforce Reconstruction policies per a deal struck uh, by congressmen to settle the disputed 1876 election in which uh, Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes won the presidency in exchange for the removal of federal troops uh, in the South. Enforcement of reconstruction policies was left, left up to state and local governments, paving the way for Jim Crow era state segregation laws that would not be declared unconstitutional for roughly another century. Okay, this is why you needed a Civil Rights Act in 1964, okay? This is why you needed the Voting Rights Act of, um, of 1965, okay? Because of what happened at the Mississippi State Convention in uh, 1890, what, what happened in uh, the state legislature in Tennessee in 1881 where they passed laws to segregate public transportation, uh, what happened in Florida in 1889, when Florida uh, passed a law instituting the first poll taxes in this country as a way to uh, get around the uh, 15th Amendment. In poll taxes, uh, you had to uh, pay to register uh, to vote, okay? And this was targeting uh, African-American men because these were basically the ones voting. Women did not get the right to vote till 1920 with the 19th Amendment. And then when we look at the what happens at the Mississippi State Convention, of 1890, we see that African-Americans were the majority of the population uh, in, in Mississippi in 1890 and the majority of the voters, okay? Um, the Mississippi plan to keep blacks from voting in 1890, we came here to exclude the Negro. We came here to exclude the Negro. And this is uh, what was, this is a direct quote from Solomon Saladin Calhoun who was the uh, man who presided over the Mississippi State Convention, okay? Let's take a look at this. How, how's everybody doing today? How you all like this type of information, okay? Uh, be sure to register for this 10-week online class that I teach on Sundays from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. We teach this at our online school. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. We're going to do this class uh, today as soon as I end this broadcast. So you can register. Uh, class is going to start right about 4 o'clock today, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Normally, we do it 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays. But uh, we're running behind schedule today. I had, to, I had to do a presentation at African Liberation Day on Saturday here in Detroit at Al-Kibalan Al Village. So I was there all day and uh, just throwing my day off. But we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch this class anytime, okay? So you don't have to be present in in uh, in class to watch. Um, after the court, after the class, each class is over with. The sessions are archived and recorded. You can watch from around the world. You can use this information with your children. Also, I would say the information is PG thirteen. It's very visual. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips. 
So you're going to learn a lot uh, in this class, a lot of information you did not learn in school as well. Uh, this is the second class that I teach. The first class that I teach is on, uh, I do on Saturdays, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave teaching in school, okay? So we deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. This class is on sale $80, regularly $130. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, that's on sale $60, regularly $130. Uh, in this first class, um, we do a thousands of years of history, what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We go through and analyze the transatlantic slave trade. So uh, you can register for the bundle, uh, the, the course bundle, where you get both of these classes. The course bundle is only $100. Okay, so this is a $260 value. You'll get both both classes. Same format. You can go back and watch any time, a year from now, two years from now you'll still have full access to the classes, okay? You can also use this class with your children as well. I would say the information is PG-13. And if you've taken any of my online classes in the past, I've been teaching these online classes since 2017, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power. I've been teaching that since 2017, on and off. And it has evolved immensely since I first taught the class. And uh, the second class from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968, I started teaching that class in late 2021. That class has evolved as well. But uh, if you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. You can get a 50% discount, okay, uh, on the course bundle. Uh, so you can get a 50% discount on the classes. But if we look at uh, this quickly here, dealing with the uh, Mississippi State Convention of 1890. And if you saw the series Eyes on the Prize, okay, if you saw the series Eyes on the Prize, the first the, the, the first Eyes on the Prize series which looks at uh, 1955 through 1968, and it starts with the, the uh, uh, lynching, the murder of Emmett Till. Uh, they talk about the Mississippi State Convention in here, and they talk about how to register the vote in Mississippi, you had to be able to uh, explain one of the something like 250, 260 uh, parts of the Mississippi State Constitution. And that state constitution was um, constructed in 1890. The Mississippi plan to keep blacks from voting in 1890, we came here to exclude the Negro. We came here to exclude the Negro. So uh, this is what Saladin Calhoun, who was the white county judge who presided over the Mississippi State Convention in 1890 said, he said, let's tell the truth if it burst the bottom of the universe. He said, we came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. So delegates at the Mississippi State Convention in 1890, adopted a literacy test and poll tax geared to uh, suppress the black vote, geared to suppress the black vote in the state that had a black majority. The Mississippi plan became, became the model throughout the South, part of a raft of, part, part of a raft of racially oppressive Jim Crow laws that ended uh, reconstruction, okay? So read the rest of this here, and it talks about what happens. But this is really important to understand. This is why you needed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, 
to nullify what took place in Mississippi in 1890, South Carolina 1895, Louisiana 1898, Alabama 1901, because these other Southern states are going to adopt similar laws and rewrite their state constitution to suppress the African-American vote. And we're going to see approximately 2,000 uh, African-American men who get elected to uh, public office during the Reconstruction era, okay? And we're going to see basically the majority of them get voted out of office after these laws, after these voter suppression laws are put in place, all right? So these are some of the things that we deal with um, in this online class. And we look at the Civil War, uh, Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. We go through and look at this history chronologically, understand what happened to us, the laws and policies that were put in place, the movements that take place to fight against these conditions and laws and policies to better understand what's taking place today. What we're seeing today, the voter suppression laws, the attack on critical race theory, all this stuff. This is a continuation of the Civil War and Reconstruction we're seeing history repeat itself. So we have to understand this, understand how to fight against this because they're trying to take us back to 1890 in the Mississippi State Convention, okay? And we already saw Plessy versus, we already saw um, with Shelby County versus Holder 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case. We saw the weakening of Section 4 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, okay? That led to that 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 led to 868 fewer polling places in um, uh, the 2016 presidential election, and today you have about 1,700 fewer polling places. Okay, and this is this is all connected. A lot of these polling places that were shut down were shut down in areas that have high African American populations, African American or Latino populations. Uh, there was an article from uh, thenation.com that dealt with how there are uh, 868 fewer polling places in the 2016 presidential election. You have that one and you have, uh, let me see if we could pull this up, 868 fewer polling places. Okay, this one right here. Okay, how's everybody doing today? Give us a thumbs up, give us a heart, give us a like if you like this broadcast. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube. And um, how do you like this type of information? Let me know. Okay, so this article right here. I talked about this when this came out uh, during the 2016 presidential elections. And a lot of us still don't understand how all this is connected today. All right, there were, um, let me close out some of these tabs here. There were 868 fewer polling places. Let's close some of this out. There were 868 fewer polling places uh, in 2016, during the 2016 presidential election. Oh, man, they come up with so many ads here. Okay, here we go. 
there are 868 fewer places uh, to vote in 2016 because the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Because the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Nearly half of counties that previously approved voting changes with the federal government have cut uh, cut polling places this election. So this is from November 4th, 2016, just a few days before the 2016 presidential election. Ari Berman, who then was writing for um, The Nation, now he writes for Mother Jones. Ari Berman did a series of articles dealing with the voter suppression that was taking place in the uh, 2016 presidential election. So today there are about... Um, Today, there are about 16, uh, about 1,700 fewer polling places, 16, 1,700 fewer polling places. So if we look at this here, um, okay, they talk about the lines along the, this part of this part of the Voting Rights Act blocked 3,000 discriminatory voting changes from 1965 to 2013. That changed when a Supreme Court gutted the, uh, the law in, in June 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. OK, uh, the lines were so long because Republican elected officials in Phoenix, Phoenix's uh, Maricopa County, the largest in the state, reduced the number of polling places by 70 percent, reduced the number of polling places by 70 percent from 2012 to 2016. From 200 in 2012 to just 60 polling places in 2016, one polling place per 21,000 registered voters. Previously, Maricopa County would have needed uh, federal approval to reduce the number of polling sites because Arizona was one of 16 states where jurisdictions with a long history of discrimination had to submit their voting changes under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. This part of the Voting Rights Act blocked 3,000 discriminatory voting changes from 1965 to 2010. That changed when the Supreme Court gutted the uh, law in June 2013, Shelby County versus Holder, uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision. The, the polling place reductions in Maricopa County in Arizona, and we saw Arizona, we saw, uh, um, we saw recounts in Arizona for the, 2020, for the 2020 presidential election. Joe Biden wins Arizona. You have Republicans filing these lawsuits trying to overturn the uh, results in Arizona, and they're still trying to overturn the results in Arizona, okay? The, uh, the Leadership Conference with Civil Rights surveyed 381 of the, 80, of the 800 counties previously covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, where polling place information was available in 2012 or 2014 and found there are, and found there are, 868 fewer places to cast a ballot in 2016 in these areas. Out of the 381 counties in our study, 165 of them, or 43%, have reduced voting locations, says the, says the important new report. Okay, now this is dealing with uh, 20, uh, the 2016 presidential election. Okay, all types of voter suppression in 2016. Okay, now then we look at 2020. Okay, all this is connected. 
And if you go back and look at the the, the voter suppression measures that were taking place, the domestic uh, the domestic terrorism, the political violence that was inflicted upon African Americans during Reconstruction, you see the same thing. And then you look at what took place after Reconstruction ended and rewriting the state constitutions to impose poll taxes and literacy tests. And in some cases, property ownership requirements to be able to vote, like we saw in Louisiana in 1898, and then Louisiana instituting the grandfather clause, which stated that uh, if your grandfather uh, could not vote prior to 1867, then you can't vote as other ways to get around the 15th Amendment of, eight, uh, of the U.S. Constitution of 1870. So we look at this article here from Mother Jones, written by Matt Coyne. Uh, this was uh, from... This is uh, September 10th, 2019, September 20, September 10th, 2019. Okay. More than 600 polling places have closed since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. More than 600 places have closed, polling places have closed since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Okay. In 2013, the Supreme Court gutted a provision, a core provision of the Voting Rights Act. The requirement for certain states within a history of uh, with a history of voter discrimination to pre-clear to pre-clear changes in their election rules with the federal government. Okay, the requirement for certain states with a history of voter discrimination to pre-clear changes in their election rules with the federal government for decades. FOR for decades, the 1965 law helped secure the right to vote for hundreds of thousands of people in nine states, as well as certain jurisdictions in six other states, which had such a history of discrimination against minority voters. This is going back to the Jim Crow era. All this history is connected. This is why we have to understand the chronology of history, these laws and policies put in place these the, the backlash to movements that we enacted to deal with conditions to understand how to fight against what's taking place right now. But in a 5-4 decision in 2013, U.S. Supreme Court case Shelby County versus Holder, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the coverage formula for determining those jurisdictions subject to preclearance was outdated and therefore unconstitutional. If that Supreme Court case did not happen, then the voter suppression law that Texas instituted, that uh, uh, Senate Bill 202 from Georgia, things like this, those would be, those would be uh, viewed as unconstitutional and would not go into effect. This is how monumental the 1965 Voting Rights Act was, but many of us don't understand it today. But Republicans understand it. That's why they filed a lawsuit. That's why they are attacking it. The consequences of the Shelby County decision were immediate. The consequences of the Shelby County decision of 2013 were immediate. States that had previously fallen under the jurisdiction of the 1965 Voting Rights Act immediately, immediately passed tough voter restriction laws and restructured election systems. When you go read, the, when you go read articles about this, within 24 hours of the Shelby County Shelby County versus Holder decision in 2013. Within 24 hours, states that had uh, these, these former Confederate states started passing laws 
okay, to uh, these voter suppression laws. Within 24 hours, they started doing that. States that have previously fallen under the jurisdiction of the Voting Rights Act immediately passed tough voter restriction laws and restructured election systems. But a new report released today, now this is September 2019, this article is from, a new report from September 2019 by the Civil Rights Coalition, the Leadership uh, Conference on Civil and Human Rights, adds another dimension to the picture of how this 2013 ruling has undermined voter access by analyzing the number of polling places, polling places that have been closed since the ruling. According to the report entitled Democracy Diverted, Polling Place Closures and the Right to Vote, 1,688 polling places are now shuttered in those areas. Now, this is as of September 2019. Almost 1,700 polling places have been closed in those areas. Many of those cities and counties have high African-American or Latino populations. This was all a backlash because I'm going to show you I'm going to show you this information. The you the, the the 2013 U.S. Supreme Court decision of Shelby County versus Holder. Was a backlash to President Barack Obama being reelected in 2012. Because there was a record percentage of African-Americans who voted in that 2012 presidential election. 60.6%, 66.6% of African-Americans registered to vote, voted in that 2012 presidential election. And that was the first presidential election where the percentage of African-Americans who voted, who were registered to vote, who actually voted. That was the first presidential election where the percentage of African-Americans who were registered to vote, who actually voted, was higher than the percentage of white people who were registered to vote, who actually voted. This scared a lot of white Republicans to death. So then they come back and attack in the courts, which is the judicial branch of the federal government, which we many of us don't understand. Because the judicial branch of the federal government can strike down laws that are passed by the legislative branch of the federal government and can strike down policies coming from the executive branch of the federal government. This is why the courts are so important and who you vote for, not just president, but also the U.S. also the U.S. Senate, because it's the U.S. Senate that confirms Supreme Court justices and it's the U.S. Senate that confirms federal judges who are nominated by the president. So what we saw here, we saw Republicans going to the judicial branch of the federal government to attack laws passed by the legislative branch of the federal government. So the 16, so 16, uh, 1,688 polling places have been closed as of September 2019. The report, which is a follow-up to a 2016 analysis, looked at 757 counties and found that 298 of them, or 39%, reduced their number of polling places between 2012 and 2018. Okay, okay. So read the so read the rest of this piece here. All this is tied to history. Okay, what took place the the Mississippi the the the, the U.S. Supreme Court case of Shelby County versus Holder 2013, right? 
that is undoing that's basically doing like the same thing that the Mississippi State Convention did in 1890 but the Mississippi State Convention was just in one state and rewriting the state constitution is one state what the US Supreme Court did this opens the floodgates for Republicans and state legislatures outside of those former Confederate states to, to pass these voter restriction bills. So this is this is all connected. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth pond resources and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. Okay? Politics is not just voting. Is understanding the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. So if we if we look here, this last piece right here, uh, and if you like separate type of information, you can join us in class today or register for the class and you can watch uh, today's class later because the class will be archived also. If you need me to post the information again, let me know. We look at this article here. This is from history.com, official website of the History Channel. How Jim Crow era laws suppressed the African-American vote for generations. How Jim Crow era laws suppressed the African-American vote for generations. In the, uh, this is from May 13th, 2021, history.com, which is the official website of the History Channel. How Jim Crow era laws suppressed the African-American vote for generations. In the wake of the passage of the 15th Amendment of 1870 and Reconstruction, several Southern state laws that restricted African-Americans access to voting. Following the ratification in 1870 of the 15th Amendment, which barred states from uh, depriving citizens the right to vote based on race, Southern states began enacting measures such as poll taxes, literacy tests, all white primaries like we see in, in Texas, all like we saw in Texas, all white primaries, felony disenfranchisement laws, uh, which we see pop up right around 1870. You have these former Southern states start passing laws saying if you uh, are a convicted felon, you, you lose your right, right to vote. That was designed to attack African-Americans voting as well. Grandfather clauses that we see start in Louisiana, 1898. Fraud and intimidation to keep African-Americans from the polls. Okay, focused on retaining white supremacy in the electoral process. And this is what we see today with these with these Repu with these Republicans pushing voter suppression bills is to maintain white supremacy, including in states where they have a declining white population, white population like in Texas, focused on retaining white supremacy in the electoral process. Legislators use loopholes in the 15th Amendment to implement a range of measures to disenfranchise black voters without explicitly characterizing them on the basis of race. Okay, so they didn't want, they didn't say explicitly this was to discriminate against African-Americans, but they use ways like poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, property ownership requirements to get around the 15th Amendment to attack African-American voters. After more than half a million black men joined the voting rolls during Reconstruction in the 1870s, helping to elect, elect nearly 2,000 African-American men in the public office, Mississippi led the way in using measures to circumvent the 15th Amendment. Mississippi's Jim Crow era laws 
then set a precedent for other southern states to use the same tactics to assault black enfranchisement for nearly a century until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. It took it took 75 years. See, this is this is what uh, a young activist need to understand today. Okay. It took 75 years from the Mississippi State Convention of 1890 to August 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was signed into law. It took 75 years for that to take place. When you look at the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill, the, 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 we've been fighting for uh, 122 years to get an anti-lynching bill. And this is looking at when the first anti-lynching bill was introduced in 1800 by um, Representative George Henry White. George Henry White, who was the only African-American uh, left in the uh in either the, the house of representatives or senate he was the only african-american left in congress because this because uh, those former uh, confederate states changed their state constitutions and imposed poll taxes and literacy tests to suppress the african-american vote and we got voted out of office okay so when president joe biden signed the emmett till anti-lynching bill march 29 2022 this was after 122 years this is Representative George Henry White introduced the uh, uh, first anti-lynching bill in 1900. And then you had the um, then you had the uh, silent march in 1917 when you had 10,000 African-Americans marching down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan demanding federal anti-lynching bill, a federal anti-lynching bill. If we look at this uh, quickly here, lawmakers tried and failed to pass anti-lynching bills nearly 200 times. This is a sustained fight. You're not going to march for a few months out of the summer, then vote in one election, and then overturn white supremacy. 400 years or however many, whatever point you want to start counting. You, this is a sustained fight. Lawmakers tried and failed to pass anti-lynching bills nearly 200 times. The earliest such attempt, it came in 1900 when Representative George Henry White, Republican of North Carolina, the country's only, then the country's only black member of Congress, stood on the, on the, house, on the floor of the House of Representatives and read the text of his unprecedented measure, which would have prosecuted lynchings at the federal level. The bill later died in committee. Okay? We've been trying for 122 years to get a bill passed. It took 75 years from 1890 to get the Voting Rights Act. To get the Voting Rights Act. It took uh, something like uh, uh, 70, about over 70 years from 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson to 1964 Civil Rights Act, 122 years to get an Emmett Till anti-lynching bill, to get an anti, a federal anti-lynching bill. This is a sustained fight. This ain't something you, you want to accomplish everything in one election cycle, one a two-year election cycle. 
The real world does not work like that. Okay, so if we go back to this last piece here, this deals with how Jim Crow era laws suppress the African-American vote for generations. Because we're dealing with people who are doing long-range planning. They're planning past the two-year election cycle. We have to do the same thing. At the 1890 Mississippi State Convention, a new constitution was adopted that included a literacy test and poll tax for eligible voters. Under the new literacy requirement, a potential voter had to be able to read. A potential voter had to be able to read any section of the Mississippi State Constitution or understand any section when read to him or give a reasonable interpretation of any section. Now, oftentimes, the person that you had to explain it to was illiterate. Oftentimes, the white person you had to explain it to was functionally illiterate because you had a lot of white people who, who were illiterate, couldn't read or write. Or they could write their name. They could probably read their name, but they weren't functionally literate. The impact of the legislation was swift. By 1910, registered voters among African-Americans dropped by to 15% in Virginia and under 2% in both Alabama and Mississippi, according to historian Donald G. Nyman in his, in his book, Promises to Keep African-Americans and the Constitutional Order, 1776 to present. In the 1898 case, Williams versus Mississippi, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled that uh, the state, that the Mississippi state's poll tax and disenfranchisement clauses, grandfather clause and literacy test on the basis that the new constitution did not, they upheld this. The, uh, the, the, we, we fought this in court. We fought the poll taxes, all that stuff in court. U.S. Supreme Court case, 1898, Williams versus Mississippi. U.S. Supreme Court upholds the poll taxes and disenfranchisement clauses, literacy tests, things like this, on the basis that the new constitution did not discriminate between the races and it has been shown that their actual administration was not evil, only that evil was possible under them. So they say, they said it was possible evil could happen, but it is not that the laws weren't evil inherently, the laws weren't evil themselves. So after this is a Supreme Court ruling, then all these other Southern states start crafting similar laws as well. The Williams ruling, Williams versus Mississippi, 1898 ruling, eased the implementation of voter suppression statutes in many other Southern states, including Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama, Virginia, and Georgia, these former Confederate states. Um, okay, so... If we look, so they talk about literacy tests, how they work, and how they work to uh, suppress the African-American vote. In 1880, according to the U.S. Bureau of Census, 76% of Southern African-Americans were illiterate in 1880, a rate of 55% uh, percentage points greater than that for Southern whites. In 1900, 50% of voting age African-American men could not read compared to 12% of voting age white men, these disparities made literacy tests uh, one of the most effective tools <laughs> at suppressing the African-American.
these disparity disparities these disparities made literacy tests one of the most effective tools at suppressing the African American vote. The voting clerks, who are always white, could also pass or fail a person at their discretion based on race. So we have literacy tests, we have poll taxes as well. Um, for the first time since adoption of the state constitution in 1890, black voters participate in the Mississippi Democratic primary in 1946. So this is this picture that we see here, Mississippi Democratic primary of 1946. White Southern legislatures claimed that poll taxes for voting were designed to raise state revenue. To many white political leaders, the main purpose was to suppress the African-American vote. Quote, this newspaper believes in white supremacy said a Tuscaloosa, uh, Alabama news editorial, the newspaper there in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, quote, this newspaper believes in white supremacy, said the Tuscaloosa, Alabama news editorial in 1939, and quote, and it believes the poll tax is one of the essentials for the preservation of white supremacy. It believes the poll tax is one of the essentials for the preservation of white supremacy. 11 states in the South had laws that required citizens to pay a poll tax before they could vote. The taxes, which were uh, $1, $1 to $2 per year, disproportionately impacted black voters. In Georgia, which implemented a cumulative poll tax in 1877, the year Reconstruction ends, that required all citizens to pay back taxes before being permitted to vote. 1877, a cumulative poll tax in 1877 in Georgia required all citizens to pay a cumulative, uh, required all citizens, citizens to pay back taxes before being permitted to vote. Black voter turnout went down 50%, according to uh, Morgan uh, Kauser, according to uh, Morgan Kauser in the shaping of Southern politics, suffrage restriction, and the establishment of the one party South, 1880 to 1910. Name of that book again by Morgan Kauser, the shaping of Southern politics suffrage and the suffrage restriction and the establishment of the one party south 1880 to 1910. then you had what were called all white primaries like in texas okay all white primaries when literacy tests poll taxes grandfather clauses and the many other ways to circumvent the 15th amendment did not work to suppress the black voter turnout, white legislators in several Southern states used all white primaries to all but eliminate black, black voters' presence in the electoral process, all white primaries. In Texas, for example, the legislature gave the Democratic Party the authority 
to set up its own rules. The party determined that it was for white voters only, excluding African-Americans from its elections and effectively making local electoral politics dominated by one party that upheld Jim Crow laws. After a white election official blocked an African-American man named Lonnie E. Smith the right to vote in, 19, uh, in the 1940 Texas Democratic primary, the NAACP's Thurgood Marshall and William H. Hasty challenged the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they won their case. Okay, this is 1944, U.S. Supreme Court case of Smith versus Allwright. Okay, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Smith versus Allwright that the Texas white primary system was unconstitutional. So we, we, we go to court and we challenge, we challenge all this stuff, every step of the way. The right to vote in a primary for the nomination of candidates without discrimination by the state is a right secured by the Constitution, is a right secured by the Constitution, said the court in its eight to one decision. Then we have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, now what takes place in uh, signing the law 95 years later, the 15th Amendment was, uh, after the 15th Amendment was ratified, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 outlawed most discriminatory voting practices in southern states, such as literacy tests, poll taxes, and grandfather clauses that have been designed by southern legislatures to suppress the African-American vote. Almost as swift as the resistance to black voter uh, participation had been nearly a century early, so had the response to this landmark legislation. Within a year, only four of the 13 states had fewer than, uh, only within a year, only four of the 13 states had fewer than 50% of African-American registered voters. Only four of the 13 Southern states had less than 50% of African-American registered voters. Then we had Shelby County versus Holder, which is an attack on the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And this lawsuit was filed by Republicans and is designed to take us back to the Mississippi State Convention of 1890. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court walked back part of the, the 1965 Voting Rights Act when it ruled in a 5-4 vote that constraints placed on certain states and federal review of states, voting procedures were outdated. In the wake of Shelby County versus Holder, and the person they sued, the Holder, was Attorney General Eric Holder. That's who was being sued. Shelby County is a county in Alabama. Alabama was ground zero for the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And, you know, Bloody Sunday, Sunday the summer to Montgomery, Alabama march, that Shelby County is in Alabama. In the wake of the Shelby County versus Holder decision, several states have enacted laws limiting voter access, including ID requirements, limits on early voting, mail-in voting, and more. Okay? But Shelby County versus Holder, that was a backlash to the 2012 presidential election when you had a record number, a record percentage of African-Americans voting. And they voted in the 2012 presidential election. President Barack Obama was uh, reelected to the second term. Republicans come back and attack us in the courts. And a lot of us didn't see it coming and still don't understand what happened. A lot of us did not see this coming and still don't understand what happened and then don't understand how Shelby County versus Holder was an attack on the civil rights, uh, the voting rights after 65, and how that influenced 
how that influences elections today, because today you have, uh, as of September 2019, 1,688 fewer polling places, because now the uh, uh, the the county boards can just shut. They can move polling places and shut down polling places without having to get oversight or permission from a federal judge, which was one of the stipulations of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. All of this is connected. So we have to understand the history, understand the laws, understand the roles that the courts play. That goes back to this article I just showed you from Mother Jones from September 2019. September 10th, 2019, more than 1,600 polling places have closed since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Okay, all this is connected. So uh, give us a thumbs up, give us a heart, give us a like if you like this broadcast. Hope you learned a lot today. This is some of the type of information that we deal with in the uh, 10 week online class that I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. So you can join us in class today because I'm going to teach this, uh, going to teach this class. We're running late. But I had to do a, a presentation uh, for African Liberation Day on Saturday, uh, April 28th. So it's, it's throwing my whole day off. Um, we have the link here to register in the thread of this broadcast, and I just posted the information again. It's also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Class is discounted. It's um, over 50% off. It's regularly $130. It's on sale $60. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. So we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime, okay? Um, and you can use this information with your children also. I would say the information is PG-13. It's very visual. I do a PowerPoint presentation with book references, articles, video clips. Um, as soon as you register, there's bonus content that you can uh, start watching also. And even after the course is over with a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire class. Okay, normally we do this Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, and you can... Uh, uh, you'll get a 50% discount on the core uh, on the uh, our bundle pack and on this course. And we have uh, the classes in the bundle pack. Um, you get this class and also ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa understanding the transatlantic slave trade, or they didn't teach you in school. You get that in the bundle. Um, the bundle has been reduced down to a hundred dollars. So you're going to get 50% off the bundle. If you're taking any of my classes before as well. So email me, AHN show at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay. All right. So you can join us in class today because I mean, I teach this at our uh, online school. Uh, so I'm going to teach this class now. And uh, follow us here on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. Give us a thumbs up, give us a like, give us a heart. Uh, turn on live notifications so you know when we go live. Follow me on my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, Michael M. Hotep, I M H O T E P. Uh, also, on turn on live notifications so you know when we go live. And um, thanks for your support with the African History Network. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills as well. You can also support us, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App. 
dollar sign the ahn show through cash app or through paypal paypal.me forward slash the ahn show if you want to uh pay for the class through cash app you can do that as well just email me we'll set that up for you also and be sure to listen to the african history network show sundays 9 p.m to 11 p.m uh eastern standard time on 9 10 a.m the superstation wfdf uh april was um well march was my 12th year anniversary of me broadcasting the show April was the sixth year anniversary of me doing it on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. So I'm going back to just doing the show Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, Thursday, this past Thursday, April 26th was my last day doing the show daily. I'm just going back to doing it on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Because it takes a lot of research to do each episode of the show, research the information, and it's just taking up too much time. Since the show was late at night, starting at 11 p.m., it caused me to get to bed late, get up the next morning late, things like that. So I'm just going back to doing Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. I'll still be on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. as well. Okay. All right. So thanks for joining us. You can join us in class right now also. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. Uh, download the iHeartRadio app also. Search for the African History Network show there. We have a channel there and we're on 10 different audio podcast platforms. Facebook podcast, iHeartRadio, Google podcast, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, so wherever you get your podcast from, search for the African History Network show also. Okay. Wakanda forever. Talk to you next time. Peace. <laughs>